yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you're you're in Indiana. Yes, I'm in Indianapolis, uh, capital city, pretty much right in the center of the state. And you're on the West Coast. I'm in Vegas, almost the West Coast, but close okay. enough, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm from the East Coast originally. I'm from Baltimore. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, but yeah, you're from Indiana, right? Yeah, from Indiana. I lived in Washington, D.C. for about two and a half, three years. So only what, about 45 minutes from Baltimore? I'm oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, you probably visited at least a few times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, how long ago was that? Was that. 2015 to about 2017, 18, something okay. like that. Yeah. I had, uh, I was dating a woman at the time who got a job at the Smithsonian in DC. So we moved out there for a while. Yeah. My, uh, my wife's from DC or like just South of DC there. So like her family's yeah. all up in there and yeah. Yeah. Charles County area is where her family's mostly living. Yeah. I, I liked it there. There were downsides of course, but it's super easy to get around, especially if you're within the city proper, public transportation is pretty effective. Yeah. It was nice not having a car, a lot, all the free museums, free zoo, all that stuff. And now you're out there, you're, you, you, you're getting a kind of a reputation of a, a Midwestern man, right? Like, like a Midwestern writer, like, <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, partially my fault because I have somewhat marketed myself that way. Although I am already at the point where I think going forward, would like to move away from that a little bit. I don't want to be confined to a place or be viewed primarily as a regional writer. And partially that'll be my own doing how I write from here on out. But yeah, the Midwest thing is a little bit of a reaction to maybe the prevalence of coastal perspectives. But I also don't want to be merely reactionary or in this position where it's almost like a, a kind of exoticism or something, right? I, I don't want that to be at the forefront. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I always I talk about it all the time on this podcast and shit, like when I'm talking to writers or just aspiring writers and things like that, where if you get pegged. But you get pegged yeah. as a certain type and then you're kind of stuck with it and some you can either embrace it or you can shit on it or, or you know whatever you want to do with it kind of how you're feeling yeah. in the moment <laughs> yeah you have no control over how people react to once you put that shit out there you know like kind of yeah that's true that comes with the territory but at the same time you can lean in one direction or another and yeah i don't want to just keep drilling down into this i'm a I don't want it to be too parochial. Right. Yeah. Well, as I said, I've, I have a few questions about that, actually. Yeah. About yeah, getting pegged as a certain type of writer, uh, Midwestern. And I know you're all into like kind of like the masculinity discourse that kind of circulates the fucking web, <laughs> you know, yeah. at all times. But... Yeah, we could definitely talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. I may say male is entirely hostile. No! Inner resources. Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. This is Andrew Whitstat. And you were listening to Heavy Board. And we're recording this on September 21st, 2023. My guest today is author Caleb Caudell. 
an American of the heartland, the Midwest. Caleb's work and writing has been said to embody the spirit of this uniquely American landscape in the middle of the country. And he embraces it like a true literary visionary. Growing up in Southern Indiana and attending Indiana University for a degree in comparative literature, Caleb Caudell uses these experiences in this part of the country, this specific part in his writing and artwork. And he's doing what all the great literary writers of their time did, write what they know. And more than that, embody the spirit of the location, opening the world as he sees it to an audience of readers. This is a task, listeners. One Caleb takes on in the tradition of Twain and other literary greats to capture these painful yet uniquely beautiful landscapes and the people who populate them. Caleb's debut novel, The Neighbor, published in 2021 by Bonfire Books, was shortlisted by the Indiana Authors Award for the 2022 Eugene and Marilyn Glick Award for the debut fiction category. He operates a Substack page called Middle American Literature, available at middleamericanliterature.substack.com, where readers can enjoy short fiction, autofiction, blog posts, political commentary, philosophy, and just plain musings on the state of literature. And his follow-up book, a collection of short stories entitled Novelty and Other Short Stories, is out now from Bonfire Books. And all of these titles and the link to Caleb's Substack page can be found in the description of this podcast, listeners. I reached out to Caleb, wanting to discuss all things writing and building an independent platform as a creative. And he graciously agreed to join us here at Heavy Board to bring his particular flavor of creative independence to all you listeners out there. Caleb, welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, I love doing this. I love getting a chance to talk with writers and all that. Uh, I did do a little digging, obviously, to have to prepare that uh, introduction <laughs> on your website and your Substack page and all that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, glad to have you here. We love showcasing writers on this podcast. Hopefully we get you a few sales <laughs> with uh, links to your books and all that. But I always like to start this with overview, kind of the writer themselves. So I always like to ask, what was your childhood like? And I know that's a very broad question. So I've tried to gear it towards, you know, how did that lead you to writing and reading? You know, I guess usually reading starts first when you're going into all this. And then how did that all kind of play out? You know, give us the summary or, you know, as detailed as you want. Yeah, uh, these things are always relative, difficult to judge. But I want to say I had a fairly normal upbringing. And I come from a solidly middle-class family in the middle of the country, in the Midwest. I never wanted for much, although I also don't think my tastes or in interests were all that luxurious, but uh, I never felt, I, I was never in a state of poverty, uh, public education, I did start, and I don't know why this happened, but I did start reading books that were probably a little too advanced for me, for my age, uh, but still mass market paperbacks. I, I was reading probably around nine or 10, I was reading Stephen King and Robert Ludlum, Tom Clancy, and my parents had a lot of those mass market paperbacks. So I was reading a lot of that stuff. And of course, all the material that was assigned in class as well, uh, Boxcar Children, Goosebumps, 
things of that nature. Early on, I can't say that I had some special interest in literature. It was just something that I picked up. And I'm sure I wrote a little bit from time to time in class, but I, I didn't really have literary aspirations or anything of that nature for quite a while. And as a teenager, I was much more into music. I started playing guitar in 13, 14, something like that, and then got into classical guitar and went initially to the IU Jacobs School of Music for classical guitar, a degree in guitar performance. Was there for a year, dropped out, and then at that point, I don't know, it was a strange convergence of me get, becoming much more interested in drugs and partying, but at the same time, a classic liter literature and literary fiction. So I was partying quite a bit, but also taking quite a bit of time to read James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and modernist fiction, especially, I think I, that's what really started to hook me at some point, uh, William Faulkner, Hemingway, all of those classics. And even then, through my, throughout my 20s, I didn't really write much at all, but I was starting to lose my interest in music. And I didn't start to write consistently until my late 20s, uh, maybe a little bit before, but by the time I moved out to DC, because I'm from, I've lived in Indiana most of my life, but I spent a couple of years in DC. And when I moved out there in my late 20s, early 30s, I was very isolated, more than I'd ever been. I've always been somewhat solitary, but it was especially isolated at that time. And then I started a blog, and it was a, I had a pseudonym at that time. I was not writing under my own name, but I started writing about current events. It was political commentary, cultural commentary, riffing on everyday life. And I built up a practice from there. I had no idea. I had no goals. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about writing books, publishing, putting out anything, making any money. It was simply very enjoyable for me to write consistently and to develop a voice. And it built up from there. And after about a year or two of that, I started thinking more seriously about writing actual books. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I always curious and I like to ask because it is like people I think are afraid to admit when they come to it later in life, when 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 they come to the craft, like people, oh, I've been doing this since I was 13 or, you know, something like that. And it's like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter when you come to it, you know, as long as you. Yeah, sometimes it works out that way. I, I, I wouldn't say that I had especially auspicious beginnings. Uh Although, yeah, there's there is some experience there. Right. And it's especially at the time I grew up, it was it would be very difficult to avoid taking some interest in books or literature. But it really it, it did take a long time for me to find this as something that was as fulfilling as it has ended up being. Yeah. And it's that's awesome, man. Like and, and I just, I've. I find it because there's always waves. Like you said, you were into music and then you kind of fell away from it. And then you were like kind of off and on with it. I mean, it's just how it always works, like these ebbs and flows, right? And then you kind of change tastes, cha tastes change in the middle of that. And you start doing 180 yeah. all of a sudden. Uh, yeah, life is very long, actually. I think <laughs> you, you always hear about how short life is. And I've maintained for quite a while that life's very, very long. And you live multiple lives within one lifetime. And that's that's how I felt about it for a while now. Yeah, yeah. And I like that you said, yeah, very normal childhood. I think 
especially like I guess because of those modernist writers like you mentioned where they all had you know they all went to war they were all like some type of like you know tragic thing in their life you know pre-1950s style of living in the in the western world I guess and it was like yeah like most of us now like if you were born post 1950s you had like an idyllic childhood like just perfectly happy like, yeah <laughs> sometimes i still to this day will ask myself how did i turn out like this because i can't point there's no obvious trauma there's no major tumult or the, there's nothing even in the that historical period that i was swept up in that might have had that influence on me I, I don't know i can't account for it all that well are you uh, are you a millennial i think technically that's what yeah a little bit on the older side yeah i don't know what the exact limits are for that right. but yeah it's it's very millennial it's very like idyllic childhood and like people call it boring but like i love that shit <laughs> you know like, yeah. <laughs> yeah no the boredom has has come later actually uh with <laughs> adult life and working and yeah i don't think my childhood i wouldn't characterize it as boring of course it would i think most children are they are naturally imaginative and especially when they're not confronted with chaos and violence and tragedy i think even if on the surface their lives are uneventful they're going to fill that in with imagination creativity yeah yeah that's why I think I think that's why we romanticize the childhood too. Like when people yeah. they either want to romanticize it for something traumatic, like it that shouldn't have happened, and then there's also just this the creative juices that are flowing. Even if you're not good at it or you're really talented, you're still making up scenarios like playing with dolls and shit. Like I've had other writers like was that your type or did you do like kind of role play shit when you Oh were... that with action figures, G.I. Joe's uh, playing out in the yacht. We had not a huge yard or a lot of land, but a decent backyard. And I had two brothers and a sister. So we were always doing these you know, mock war scenarios and things that were pretty, pretty outlandish at times, but still just a lot of fun and not, and there, there's almost a, it's a pre-reflective state, right? Your, your mind is very active as a child. You're very imaginative and creative and spontaneous, but you're not doing a lot of reflecting on those things themselves. So you're not really inhibited in the way that you end up being later. Well, not that everyone ever gets there, but as many people do, as you accrue enough experience, you start reflecting on what you're doing. And then that almost gets in the way of those spontaneous actions. Yeah. The kind of the paralysis of reflection in some ways. Yeah. 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 That's great, man. Uh, I love hearing that. I love hearing when, when writers are like, you know, because, yeah, there's always this inherent creativity. And then when you reach adulthood, if you want to keep going with that or if you want to if you want to just not, you know, kind of that's crazy. But my next question for that along those same lines, what were some of the first writers that you were enamored with or, you know, who your go to go to inspirations, idols? And I know there's all kinds of answers that writers can give for this. But, yeah, what are your uh, what were like the first couple that you took you? Yeah, probably. Well, there's that the childhood period where I was reading the Stephen King and Tom Clancy and Robert Ludlum. And I don't know if that was even influ influential or inspirational as far as literature goes. Was, those were just stories I enjoyed. But in my early 20s, I think initially I was very much inspired or impressed by modernist proper literature. James Joyce, Ulysses, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, Dubliners. 
Virginia Woolf. I was a huge fan of uh, William Faulkner, blew me away. Uh, his short stories, especially, I remember at the time, had a major impact on me. It rose for Emily, I still consider it to be one of the best, if not the best short story that's ever written, if you need to categorize it like that. Uh, Southern Gothic was very important early on. So yeah, William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor. Trying to think of who else, but at the same time, I was also, I wasn't just influenced by fiction, but I was doing a lot of reading in philosophy and the, the, con the continental tradition mostly, not so much on the Anglo side or the analytic side, but uh, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Heidegger, Kant, Hegel, not that I... I don't. I wouldn't say that I was digesting all of it fully, but it, it did have an effect on me, and I, I was quite taken with a lot of that material as well. Yeah, and like, uh, so Joyce, Virginia Woolf. That's great. Any particular favorites? You said Ulysses, or uh... yeah, uh, the Waves uh, to the Lighthouse, Mrs. Dalloway. Oh yeah. That uh, some of her Jacob's room actually maybe Jacob's room was the first one of the Wolf uh, books that really gripped me. Yeah, James Joyce, Portrait of an Artist, I thought was incredible. Ulysses, I never, still haven't read Finnegan's Wake. I mean, I've That's a it. rough one. Yeah, I've read you know a page or two here and there, but I've never really felt compelled to to go all the way through it, but. Hemingway, too. Uh, I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, uh, Farewell to Arms. That's probably my favorite. That or For Whom the Bell Tolls. I think he probably peaked in between 30 and 40 or whatever that period was because I think he put out a Farewell to Arms at about 30. I think For Whom the Bell Tolls was in his 40s. After that, not so much. So, although his short stories are also they're a little bit more hit and miss because he wrote quite a few over a very long period of time but you know snows of kilimanjaro is oh, yeah. that that's that's another one that i would put right up there among the best uh even the sun also rises is very good although i remember thinking that i i could see how he developed things right because so much of that narrative is and then we went to the cafe and had a beer and a sandwich and had another coffee. And then we went over here and, uh, yeah, that I remember reading that and thinking, like, where are the scenes where you're, you have to go to the toilet because yeah. you're just sandwiches and drinking beer all the time. But yeah, Hemingway is, has definitely been an influence as well. Uh, it's, it's always a difficult thing too, right? Because you don't want to, ape or mimic things too closely. And, and Hemingway is one of those writers. I think Hemingway and Faulkner in their own way, if you're not careful, it's very easy to mimic a little bit too closely because they are such powerful writers and you have to be careful with that and not let that steer you too forcefully. Right. The influences I, I, I keep, I have it on my list to do for this podcast is Bloom's anxiety of influence yeah uh eventually just because i'm so fascinated by that um you know and it's all it's just cool to to see that i always say like the pulp guys i'll talk about like the big pulp guys you can see mm -hmm. that they loved hemingway and faulkner like they worshipped yeah. them like just the styles they were trying to copy and it worked in that kind of pulpy story stuff too yeah. very simple clean uh maybe not chandler was as clean as some of the others but it was still like you know 
Awesome. And then Faulkner, man. I mean, Faulkner, yeah. I'm blown away every time I, I touch a Faulkner book or yeah. story. Like, the guy is untouchable, basically, in terms yeah. of, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. incredible what he's able to do with little paragraph-long chapters. Like, paragraphs. Yeah. And, and it's, just, it, yeah, it's not just literary pyrotechnics either although there is that aspect to it right even on the surface it's it's dazzling but the way he penetrates into the psyche and the heart of a character is really remarkable and very rare and that's something slight aside the comparison is often made people often say that Cormac McCarthy is the the modern or the contemporary Faulkner and of course he's worth reading too and I think he's great in his own way, but I don't think he ever reaches the same depths in characterization as Faulkner. I mean, he does yeah. have a style which is very enjoyable and ornate and rich, but as far as that characterization goes, I don't think, yeah, you, you can't match Faulkner. Yeah, I agree. I think you can see the influence of Faulkner and McCarthy's stuff, but yeah, there is like a, it's a different, it, it's so, it's different enough that you're like, yeah, it's not quite. Again, who can top what Faulkner? <laughs> I mean, that is yeah. that is incredible. Like all, yeah, yeah. And what's left out of the stories and all that. Any, uh, any like being like an elder millennial. It's the, I'm kind of towards the elder side too. Maybe just at the cutoff of the, with the elder millennial. My sister's probably more of the elder millennial kind of. And you were growing up mostly in, in Indiana, like the '80s, '90s, kind of. Yeah, early mid '90s. Yeah. Right. Like any of the uh the gen x writers touch you i know there's a couple big millennial ones that uh well i'm trying to think of it like, like uh, brady sinellis chuck uh, chuck palinuk uh they really didn't i didn't uh I, I jumped over that i guess and it wasn't even a i don't think it was ever a conscious thing but i i i went farther back pretty quickly and i no, i did not read the who maybe like a douglas cope copland or right, something right. like uh yeah brady sinellis Donna Tart, whatever that Rat Pack thing was. <laughs> no, I never really got into that. I don't know. No, no. Maybe I would enjoy it if I took a look at it now. But man, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm not in too much of a rush. Really there was there. an instinct I know when I was preparing for this and researching your work and 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 other interviews that you've done and stuff. I was, uh, I was tempted to make some of the comparison to a Chuck. Not necessarily, and I don't know. I don't want you to take that as an insult or anything. But it's like, yeah, no. like a. That has I, been, I've heard that before. Other people have said that right. certain things remind them of Chuck Palahniuk. And I, I don't think that, no, I, that doesn't seem like an insult to me at all. I mean, obviously, he's been very successful and is competent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very are successful. Yeah, yeah there, are, there are worse people you could be compared to, however much you know about them. Yeah. I'm always just curious because I feel like there is that kind of, and we'll, we'll get more to this when we talk to the masculinity angle later in the interview here, listeners. But it is like... He was so, a lot of those writers were so important to us millennials, like those Gen X kind of kids that were coming up at that time in the 90s, 80s, when we were growing up and like the transgressive shit they were putting out was just, you know, I mean, I don't want to say life changing, but it did kind of spark something in the culture to, in terms of that masculinity too, like yeah, that the sounds new right. style of it, like this kind of new millennium style of masculinity mm -hmm. or something I, i'm just making that phrase up so, you well, know, but. but it is it's a it's a reaction too right it's a it's a reaction to at least a perception of increased feminization of the culture or social structures and i think we've seen at least one or two more cycles of that play out since then 
If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. I mean, that's very interesting. What do you mean by that? With the uh... Well, because I think of Fight Club, what, came out in the late 90s, I think. Yeah. And the book, I'm assuming, was a year or two before the movie. The movie was probably 1999. And what, that was a reaction to the softening of the American male through materialism and capitalist-enforced hedonism, a pursuit of material goods, comfort, all of that. And also this perception that men lacked this a space or vocations in which they could properly explore, or express their masculine drives and impulses. But that was in 2000. Right. right. So, yeah. our, so it's not as if, but, but we see this happen. The same complaints are made today and the, the same reaction is occurring now. So I think that, yeah, you have these, dips you have these rises and falls of people wanting to make things safer more efficient cleaner there's more oversight but then people react to that they want a little more freedom a little more danger a little bit more grittiness maybe even violence to some extent yeah yeah absolutely i always say i i it's I plan to write an essay on this eventually, but because you know, like Fight Club is one of those things that trends online every couple months. Every couple yeah. months, it's like fucking repetitive at this point that it just trends, and people say, "Oh, it's toxic," or "Oh, they hate it," or "Oh, they love it," kind of thing. And it's mm-hmm. like, I always am fascinated. I'm trying to explain to people, even like my wife and like the other women in my life, I'm always trying to explain to them why men love this material, even if they've never read the book, they love the movie. And it's like, it's a, it touch, it hits that nerve, that camaraderie, that space for you to just unabashedly be masculine in these kind of ways. Not even necessarily the violent aspect. I think people get kind of overemphasized on that violence in Fight Club where physically fighting, where most of the movie is about the terrorist organization that starts from it, you know, like kind of, that's the real thing that they're drawn to, not so much the physical violence, but. Yeah, the bonds, the brotherhood, right. the, the the belonging to something which isn't overtly feminized or sanitized. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. That's awesome. Uh, question about your publication of your first novel. As I looked up doing this stuff is you have a unique journey to publication for your first novel. Uh, and this, is this true? Like I read that you, uh, you just tweeted out, does anybody want to publish my novel? And that's how it yeah. happened. Yeah. yeah, and it, that's pretty much the only way it could work for me because I am so dispositionally cranky and impatient, and I don't want, regardless of what I do, I would really prefer not to have to wait eight months to even hear that someone doesn't want to work. 
And and I had no grand aspirations for it either, right? I, I wasn't thinking of Penguin or Random House or Shimon and Schuster or whatever. I, I I would have I'll put a book out myself if I have to. I don't really care. And I thought maybe I would end up doing that anyway. And I'd had I had the the draft done. I was going to still edit a few more rounds, but I was basically done with the book. And yeah, I tweeted out asking if anybody wanted to do it. And very quickly, the guys at Bonfire responded to me. They had been reading my blog, which at that time I was doing a WordPress blog. That's not up anymore. I moved to Substack at some point a couple of years ago, but early on I was doing WordPress. They'd been reading it. They offered to do it, sent them the manuscript, and they put it out, I think, in probably six months or so. We went back and forth a few times on some edits and... They made some s small suggestions, minor stuff, but yeah, it, that that's perfect for me because otherwise I don't really have the patience or the interest in dragging it out or being part of some massive backlog where it's done, but it's going to be two years before right. it's even available. I don't know. I, maybe at some point I will have built up enough to where I don't care if they take that long, but I like being able to put material out when it's ready. Yeah, and I think that's, and it's a bonfire books is small indie press, right? Small. Uh... Yeah. And they're based in Australia. Although one of the guys used to live in Indiana. So we have that connection. I think he's either from Indiana or he's maybe from California, but spent a good part of his childhood or adolescence in Indiana, but they're, they're in Australia, but that doesn't even really matter so much because everything is global and digital so communication is still yeah there's a time difference but it's not too difficult to work out right right and i I'm, i am fascinated by this because i think it's becoming more of a thing we're kind of the indie small presses are putting out really interesting stuff right now mm -hmm. and the big you know i guess what they call them the big five here in the u.s are putting out kind of i don't want to say it's boring but i mean to people like some a lot of readers like me it is kind of an eye roll or kind of a, like, what are you doing here? And they're wondering why sales are going down. It's like, well, you're not publishing anything exciting or fun. Whereas these indie presses are really kind of taking up the slack and putting out cool, even, even if it fails, like experimental stuff, like, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a lot <laughs> of good stuff that is being put out and I, I am a, a melancholic person in many ways, but one of the things that I don't really bemoan so much is the state of literature now. I think, first of all, you have all of human history to look through if you want quality writing. But even right now, there are great writers out there, and maybe they're not being published by major presses. But if you put just a little bit of work in, it's pretty much a guarantee you're going to find something that's worthwhile that suits your own interests and tastes. It's it's, it's not that hard, and it's right. almost a almost more of a problem of there being a little too much. And I'm not saying that there are a million Tol Tolstoy's out there writing right now. You know, still there there's variation in the quality, but there's plenty of good material, and it's more so a matter of having the time to sift through it and find something that you like. Yeah. And I think it, it, it is weird because everybody talks about fucking echo chambers and stuff online and you kind of self-select for your own kind of echo chamber. But like, 
I think the, all that noise online does make people think that it's worse than it is. You know, like yeah. kind of like, oh, it's so terrible because they're only looking at those big five. And of course, the big five give you the most play. You get in all the stores. You have no issues getting into all these sales, you know, Amazon, yeah. all the different websites to buy books. But then it's like, yeah, like there is this very, it's so large that you could find almost anything you want. Like it's kind of this weird yeah. paradox of choice where <laughs> people feel yeah. like because there's so many options that there's no options, you know, that kind of. Yeah, it, it, it can be overwhelming. It can be stifling or paralyzing, but you need just the a bare minimum of research skills and <laughs> interest to, to find something. I don't know. I. Even the way that people, so maybe this is all in engagement bait, but the way people complain or they'll say things like, where are the, the Balzacs or the, the Tolstoys? Why, why isn't there a 19th century realist novel in the 21st century? And <sighs> one objection is there probably is something roughly equivalent, really, if you're actually getting off your ass and looking. And two, more importantly, why would you expect that, though? Why would you want a 19th century realist novel set in Paris, but, it, but today? I mean, of course, the writing is going to be different, but do, do you know how to adapt to what is happening and how to adjust your standards? Not to say just to lower them or to expect less, but you have to... You have to be willing to understand or accommodate how style is going to change, voice is going to change, subject matter is going to shift. All of these, this, it just seems like a basic thing that you should be able to move with and adapt to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by that. I'm always fascinated about how that comes to, to, I, I saw a great, viral tweet months i don't even know when i saw it but it was it said you know everything is more niche and more popular than ever like simultaneously so there is like you just have to do a little bit more work just like there's just so much bullshit or crap to sift through until you mm -hmm. find those little diamonds you know hidden in the rough there and yeah i, I guess and I, it does take work right like it's effort that people don't want to do like a little bit of work but it's not i don't even think that should be overstated it's really not that much work but but i think but here's what happens i've said this in a couple of different ways and it's maybe even a theme on some of my Substacks, which is that the more apparent options you have and the more apparently easy it is to select among them or move through them the less effort you're actually willing to put into doing that and my, a really easy or obvious example of this, not that I have a ton of experience with this sort of thing, but the dating app effect where <clears throat> I think what happens with a lot of people is that because it's so apparently easy to look through potential partners, the, the ease of it actually lowers, by itself, lowers your willingness to do anything. Right. So, so it's... It, oh, it's so easy to send a text. Well, almost the fact that it's so easy to send a text makes the effort it would take to do that not even worth it. Right. So I think there's something happening that's similar to that with, it's really not hard to do a little searching and to maybe even get to know a few people who can also recommend things to you, but you're already, you're already in this position where you really don't want to put effort in 
And so it doesn't seem worth it. Yeah, I think that, and I'm thinking now when you're bringing that up is I always rail on this in, in serious and then also joking ways where like, is it just a matter of taste? Like the people in that would usually do that, like do the write-ups in the magazines, do the write-up in the, in the Sunday Times, do the New York Review of Books types write-ups. Did they used to have better taste? The people that would do that or are they like less taste now, you know? like <laughs> There's probably something to that as well. And another thing is that we don't live for better and worse or whether it's better or worse, we simply do not live in a literary culture. The right. literature is not the dominant medium and it hasn't been for quite some time and so i think things are going to be more niche in general even though yeah you, you will have these bestsellers that pop up sometimes i doubt i wonder if those are even being bought by people most of the time i don't know sometimes the, those things seem a little bit suspect where oh yeah it might especially i you've got ghost writers you've got probably organizations that are buying up mass quantities of these books and it's i've seen the some that's like the the new york times has uh, people that know this or are into the world of literature know that the new york times bestseller list is editorialized is that what they call yeah. it yeah uh the wall street journal just kind of prints the sales metrics if you go to like the wall street journals kind of weekly you know sunday uh, or i guess mm -hmm. they don't do sunday saturday for the journal there but like they just print the top selling books so sometimes like fucking harry potter will be like the number one selling book that week or something again you know but the new york times kind of editorializes and i've seen some stuff where like a book that sells 300 copies is given the new york new york times number one bestseller you know across the top of that book and it is kind of it does feel like hmm you know are they selling thousands of copies millions let alone millions yeah. you know like yeah, and I, I also think that many of those books, the, the point is not the book, it's probably promoting something else, or there's a personality behind it, or there's a, a larger promotional campaign that's supporting it. It really isn't about the book itself. It's not that it's not an author who's been building an audience over time. I, I, I always think it's strange when you see a debut best New York right. Times. How did that happen? You have never written anything oh, you're a professional podcaster or you're a, a media figure somehow. And may, who knows if you even wrote it. Oh, yeah. I've seen, um, and not just like the debut, like, yeah, the debut writers, I've seen that just, it is kind of like, ooh, if you went to Columbia, you probably have a yeah. better chance of getting on there. I always talk about that. Uh, it depends where you went to school. It depends what connections you made there. The networking is a huge part of it. I know people don't like to hear that, but it is. It is, yeah. Your friends mm -hmm. that work somewhere is like kind of, if you don't have any connections, it's going to be, it's even harder. Like it's even harder to get that shit out there. But yeah, it, that can be a little frustrating at times. And you will hear people bitch about that sort of thing too. Although I try not to let that get to me too much. I don't think it even really matters all that much. I, it depends on what your goals are and what you're ultimately trying to do, right? Uh, but for me, I am primarily concerned with writing, writing well and continuing to improve. And as long as I know I'm doing that, or at least I'm putting in an effort to do that, it doesn't matter to me so much what other people are doing to climb the ladder. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, shit, we've all felt that. We've all felt the frustration of that, you know, kind of 
oh, it's an old boys club and they're not letting me in type thing is how yeah. it feels. But then, yeah, if you're constantly harping on that, if you're constantly thinking about it, not only is your work going to suffer, you're going to come off as like just a bitter, you know, yes. and that nobody wants to hang out with a bitter person or read a bitter person's books, you know, <laughs> like kind of. Yeah. yeah, it seems insecure. after right. a certain Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's all right. So I do want to move to the Midwest here, too, as we go through this kind of uh, and I, I've kind of a specific question about the Midwest. And again, I'm not from the Midwest. Uh, I haven't really spent a whole lot of time there besides kind of passing through or staying in a hotel room for a night or two or whatever. Uh, but I want to ask you, what is it about the Midwest? And I think the South, to some extent, too, the American South, at least, that is allows for like this kind of easy romanticizing. Like it becomes very romanticized in our culture. And I, I was just like, is it such a rich landscape for fiction and kind of even nonfiction? You know, is it the kind of homeliness that we, even if it's not there, we imagine it or something, you know, like kind of. There are a few different things that work there. One, the, the actual landscape is more varied than many people assume. Of course, there are stretches like Northern Indiana is largely flat and it is mostly taken up by corn and soybean fields. Right. But that's that's a more recent development, right? It's not as if all of American history that was that was the case. But southern Indiana is extremely hilly and scenic and very pretty in in for large stretches. Uh in different parts of the Midwest you've got river towns that are very pretty. It, it's it's a very beautiful landscape in part. Uh, another thing though, I think there is a, the positive side of the perception is that people are very down to earth in the Midwest, uh, not pretentious, not aspirational, not full of, it's not a class of strivers necessarily. The negative version of that is that the, maybe people are simple minded or parochial bumpkins, without much ambition or intellectual drive or interest. But that those two perceptions balance each other out in a way. And I, I do think there is always this tendency to look at a group of people who are not all that restless and ambitious or ruthless, cutthroat in that way, and, and romanticize that. It's a simple way of life where people stick together and stick to the, the ways that they know. Yeah, I kind of, in my brain at least, I'm always like, okay, this reminds me of like small, t I have lived in the South and smaller cities in the South too. I didn't like go to Atlanta uh, for my grad school. I was in Lake Charles, Louisiana, a very small town. I could easily see how people romanticize that kind of Southern atmosphere, that kind of Midwestern small town, like you said, almost bumpkin, but not quite. That's, I don't think they're yeah. quite romanticizing it because of that. Like, it's like, I keep thinking like, I mean, I'm always a sucker for it. So I always ask this question. Like when I see like a small town crime story or something, you know, like a Coen Brothers style movie, yeah. there's just something about it that grips like the American psyche, you know, like this kind of grips yeah. us and is like, oh, like I have to watch this, you know, like. Yeah. And maybe even a, a longing for a more rooted existence too, where the, the social bonds are stronger and there's a little bit more of a sense of tradition, right? There's tighter links between or among generations. I think as you get into the more urbanized life, things speed up quite a bit. The relationships are more rapid fire, more transactional, much more population churn. I mean, that, that is affecting all of America at this right. point. But the 
people a perception that in the Midwest or in smaller cities, smaller towns, there's less of that going on. It's been, it hasn't chopped everything up quite the same way. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that too, how kind of social media has, you know, people always talk about the state of the culture or whatever on, on social media, all day on social media, yeah. like, but that, yeah. it is like this, uh, people do romanticize that small town, that, that, that tight knit kind of everybody looks out for each other type thing, especially when you grow up in big cities or the coastlines like I did. And then when you get into those small towns like I did, you realize that there, you know, there's it's the nice things about it. There are good things about that. But then there's also negative where it's like, okay, if anything happens in your life, like literally everybody yeah. knows about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and also the, the same negative trends or forces that are at work in these urban environments, they are also affecting the small towns too. And in the last 20, 30 years especially, of deindustrialization policies and the hollowing out of these small towns and the loss of manufacturing and how that has destabilized and impoverished these formerly cohesive populations. That too, is that exaggerated? I mean, again, I only see it driving through some of those areas and stuff where everybody talks about the devastation and it is kind of, I mean, you see this all over America. If you drive from one coast to the next, doesn't matter if you take the Southern route or the more Northern route through the Midwest, there's a lot of devastation, a lot of decay, a lot of abandoned, you know, uh, plants and factories <laughs> that are just rusting into rubble. And you kind of look at these grand structures and there is something there is something inherently romantic about it. Like I want to romanticize that dead factory over there. That's like, man, why did we do this? Why is that happening? You know, mm-hmm. and maybe romanticizing places like the Midwest or the, or the American South or something, or even the Southwest, you know, like McCarthy style. <clears throat> There's like, that is very American to romanticize these kind of, these mm-hmm. smaller places, even if we've never fucking been there, you know, everybody gives uh, what, what was the, oh God, I'm blanking on his fucking name. The, the call of the wild guy. Jack, Jack London. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, everybody gives him shit because, oh, he wasn't a real adventurer. He didn't actually yeah. go. It's like, yeah, of course he didn't. But, like, there was something about that that, like, yeah. that you could romanticize that natural barren landscape that is untouched by humans. And it just <clears throat> gives this rich tapestry, I, I might say, to creative endeavors, whether you're writing an album, whether you're writing a book, whether you're painting something, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I think Americans are also especially prone to that kind of nostalgia or longing for permanence and tradition and long-standing bonds and relationships because the expansion was so swift and the country formed so quickly under very chaotic conditions and we don't really have those deep roots even and we want their, the deepest roots we can find are in places like the South or the Midwest, where it at least seems that for a little while there was a little bit more stability. But it's a country from the beginning that has been marked by wave after wave of immigration, population displacement, dispossession, settlement, resettlement, all of these major changes. Yeah. And I think this is a good place to start tapping on what I wanted to ask you about, kind of the masculinity, particularly masculinity in literature and stuff. When you, you mentioned displacement, 
And we could talk about this in all different kinds of contexts. Like you said, we talk about location displacement, we can talk about economic displacement. But I think, especially in some of the circles that where we find ourselves hovering around on Twitter and, and other online spaces, Substack and stuff like that, there is the emphasis on kind of the masculinity displacement, the dis displacement of American males specifically. And, and you, your fiction touches on this, your philosophical writings kind of touch on this, and you kind of have spoken about this. And I just wanted to ask, you know, there seems to be this kind of dismissiveness towards men, especially in literature right now. Like, you know, do you feel that or where do you feel that that comes from? Or is it overblown? You know, I do think it's, it's slightly overblown. And I would also, even though, I'm aware of these things and will talk and write about them. I don't want to be squarely pegged as a masculinity writer or a masculinity guru or someone, <laughs> a, a spokesman for that sort of thing because it's broader than that. But I, I think one perception is that, well, men dominated literature for so long that now it's time to open the field up for, to these other voices. And that, that perception I don't think is entirely accurate. I, I think women have done pretty well in literature for a long time. Right. Especially, I'm not up on the figures, but the, I think there are time periods when, and going pretty far back into maybe even 19th century England, when women authors were selling a lot of books, and they were not under some censorship really or no more than was normal for the time that applied to anyone so i think that that, that perception itself is probably exaggerated that right if women have been held down and have never been allowed to write books or there's the, the same cases are always brought up that if mary shelley was only able to put something out because of her relation to the percy bryce right. shelley uh or then, like, George Eliot was, had to write under a pseudonym. But I don't even know. I don't know what the whole story there is. But that stuff isn't necessarily so interesting to me. I just think it is, uh, I think, what affects gender relations, sex relations more than anything, first, is uh, technological development. And I think ideology follows from that. Of course, you're going to have, even going much farther back into history, you'll have people who see a little bit farther into the future, and they'll be more deconstructive in their view of sex or gender relations. But for the most part, when we reach the level of, say, mass scale trends or tendencies, you need a certain technological economic condition first before you see the effects or the ideological expression of that. And it, to me, is, is pretty much a fact that technology has changed the role of the man in society and in the home at large. It, his primary advantage is his physical being. And industrialization, mechanization, all of these forms of technology, they affect that. And they, in many cases, render the male body, if not obsolete, at least more superfluous. Yeah. <clears throat> and I agree with that. I, I think that it is, yeah, it, 
it's it, it, everything's on delay too. Like you were talking about the technology, like something will happen and then the, it, it'll be like delayed five years or something. So maybe like five, six years ago, it was much more actively anti-male or whatever in the, this reaction period. And then everybody's kind of catching on and it's kind of not, you know, leveling back out now, I think. But I think you're right about the, the kind of, especially in the 20th century, when they talk about women being excluded from the, you know, Harold Bloom always made this point where they said, oh, we need to make the canon more diverse or whatever it is. And he would just like, well, I'd like to point out, you know, over 40% of the canon is gay already. Okay. And like, you know, a horror, a huge chunk is women. Like I love Edith Wharton. You already mentioned Virginia Woolf. Like these are two of the yeah. greatest female writers to ever, two of the greatest writers to ever live. You know, it doesn't matter that they're women kind of thing. And it's like, that was happening. Like the, if you were good enough, you know, you might've faced some yeah. issues. You would have faced some sexism. You would have faced some people that were being mean to you or whatever it is. But like the good shit, like it got passed. Like it still got through. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Jane Austen did. was publishing her novels. Sure. She was wealthy. Her family had connections, but that's how everybody became a writer. And at that yeah. time, like There's all those class differences yeah. and obstacles that people had to overcome or, bang their heads against <laughs> so then i guess a follow-up would be why why do you think we a select group of men because i don't think everybody's feeling this but the people that are paying attention trying to be writers right now why do you think we're feeling this or why do you think they are or, or would feel this or i mean people are uh pretty critical and scathing towards men in a lot of cases and, and you can tell they, they they're not only scathing or vitriolic they're they're very comfortable being or or expressing those those attitudes and that generates a few different reactions right like it sometimes causes men to hey would you believe there's still an extra hour of conversation left well there is and if you want to hear the full uncensored episode you need to subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard, where you will receive full uncensored episodes like this without any interruptions, ads, or anything else. And that's for subscribers only at patreon.com slash heavyboard. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe today and join the conversation. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. I may say male is entirely hostile. No! Resources. Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy.
board. Has you the night sweats and the day sweats, pal? Pal, I do.